Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We have a God who knows, who went to firm this point for our own redemption, for our own salvation, so that we could be with him. There's no way that we would ever be abandoned or forsaken, even if we feel like, and thank God our feelings are not facts. There's always those times when self-talk is necessary. Sometimes we got to encourage ourselves, as scripture says, to encourage yourselves and believe again and dream again and hope again. And if you can't, then get a friend who can. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Akemeni Uwan. She is one of three co-hosts of the podcast Truth's Table, and along with her co-hosts, Dr. Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins, have created a wonderful program that in 2021 won the Best Black Religion and Spirituality Podcast Award from the Black Podcasting Awards and was named by the New York Times as one of its recommended race-related podcasts. This podcast has also received an Impact Award from the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience and has been ranked among Black Pod Collective's Top 40 Black Podcasts. Today we're talking about an outgrowth from that podcast, a book also called Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Akemeni Uwan, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me, David. It's good to be here. So I want to start out asking you about the podcast itself, because I recognize that everything is grounded in that. So talk to me about what listeners can expect when they sit down and hear this and what the conversations are like. Yeah, sure. So Truth Table podcast is a table built by Black women and for Black women. Three friends who really were in a group chat together (laughs) and decided to start a podcast. And so we call ourselves the Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. And so we are thinkers, writers, church women. And so we talk about politics and culture and race, pop culture and gender from a robust Christian lens. And we, that's what we do. And that's what we have done, I should say, for the course of over five years And now we are in our sixth season. So we talk about all types of things from reparations to Black maternal health down to, you know, get out the movie or the Black Panther, you know, so just kind of dissecting some pop culture moments, if you will. 
Well, I love that descriptive phrase that you gave just a moment ago, midwives of culture for grace and truth. And for me, when I hear that description, it brings to mind several things. One, it brings to mind activity and motion, like something is being generated from this. New things are being birthed and brought into the world, but they're not just completely coming from nothing. They're, they are taking aspects of culture, aspects of grace, aspects of the Christian tradition, and they're thinking about them in new ways. Now, these are my words, not yours, but when I say that back to you, is that a good way of understanding what this midwife image is all about, or would you say it in a different way? Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to take that. We were inspired by the midwives in Scripture in the book of Exodus, Shifra and Pua, who were actually charged with killing Hebrew males, right? And so this was, you know, Pharaoh wanting to commit genocide, right, against these innocent children, and they let them live. And we think of ourselves as standing in that generation of liberation and facilitating, thriving, and the flourishing of all people, primarily, obviously, the our target market. <laughs> and our focus is on Black women. But we also, I think that the ironic or the interesting thing about Truth Table is that uh, although the seats at the table are reserved for Black women, standing room section is available. So anybody that's not a Black woman is welcome <laughs> to stand around the table or hold up the wall, if you will, to glean. Because I think there, there are things that we can learn from people that are further out in the margins than we are. And there's, there is a lot of wisdom and knowledge to be gleaned from Black women based on our vantage point and the wisdom, the hard rock wisdom that we've accumulated living here in America, if you will. Thank you for that mention of Shipra and Pua, the two midwives in the Exodus story, because they actually show up in your book, Truth's Table, and there's an extended meditation on how they fit. And one of the things that intrigued me about that discussion of Shipra and Pua was they leaned into their centrality. What I mean by that is that they recognized that they could act on behalf of the threatened children because they were indispensable in the system. And if they leaned into that indispensability, they actually got some power from that. And I recognize that we're jumping all over the place to try and set the table, if you will, for our listeners. But tell me about uh, a little bit more about Shipra and Pua and the way in which you've mentioned that they formed an ideal and an idea for what you were going to be doing in the podcast. But as they begin to show up in the book as well, these meditations on them I found to be very powerful. So talk to me a little bit about how Scripture is being utilized both in the podcast and in this book to reimagine culture and to reimagine the kind of relationships that you're bringing to the table. Yes. One of the main takeaways that I take away from them is that, you know, sometimes we think that we have to, I don't know why, but for some reason we feel like in order to have purpose or have an impact, I have to be out there on the main stage or have some big title or some big role <laughs> when it's like, no, we can affect change in the where we are currently positioned, <laughs> regardless of where we are. The shoe shiner does not have more value or is not indispensable in comparison to a CEO because there's shoe shiner. And the CEO is not better <laughs> or more valuable because that person is the CEO. And so I think that there are, we're trying to, I think, disrupt the power centers, if you will, and just showing that 
No, you have agency and power right where you are. And I think Shipra and Pua are a prime example of this as midwives. And you're right, they were central to, the, to that system. But that's not how you would necessarily think of them. I think even when people approach scripture, they don't think about that. They don't have that analysis when they're reading it. But it's like, no, they were absolutely central. And they said, no, <laughs> I'm going to do what's right. And I'm going to honor God. And I am going to preserve the lives of these children. And then what did God do? God gave them their own families as a result of them actually preserving the lives of those young, those sweet little babies. So I think that's, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just always loved those more obscure people in the Bible that sometimes we can easily pass over or read past or think they're inconsequential, but like, no, (laughs) if they did not do that, redemptive history would be in a a whole different path. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today, we're speaking with Akemeni Uwan. She's a public theologian, contributing writer for Hallmark Mahogany, and the inaugural theologian in residence for the Black Christian Experience Resource Center. She's appeared on MSNBC and NPR, and her writings have been published in The Atlantic and The Washington Post. Her insights have been quoted by CNN, The New York Times, and The New Yorker. Along with Dr. Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins, she's a co-host of The Truths Table podcast, which won the 2021 Best Black Religion and Spirituality Podcast Award from the Black Podcasting Awards and was named by the New York Times as one of its recommended race-related podcasts. And today she's also talking to us about a companion book to the Truth's Table podcast, which has just recently come out called Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. There was something you said a moment ago that I want to circle back to. Do right and honor God. And I, in every page of Truth's Table, the book, I found that mission statement ringing out because in very real world things, people, the one of the three of you musing on being single, another musing on being divorced, another musing on being married for 20 years in terms of thinking about the ways in which you know, colonialism continues to wreak havoc in the African-American community. It, just on every page, the question you could ask it of every page, how are they wrestling with what it means to do right? How are they wrestling with what it means to honor God? This is a very close analysis of culture. And I, I wonder if you can talk to me about, and I recognize that two of those personalities aren't here, but how the interplay of those of these three personalities around the table on the podcast attacks these questions of what it means to do right and to honor God? Yeah, well, we individually and collectively are deeply committed to the, the Christian faith. We all just individually have our own ministries and things that we do publicly with Christina being a trainer, like in church settings with regard to organizational leadership. And then also being actually a, a pastor's wife. And then with Michelle Higgins, who's also a, a pastor and was a longtime worship leader of, in churches for many years. So that's where her expertise lies. And of course, also an organizer in the movement for Black Lives. And then myself, being a public theologian, been doing public work, as you listed, through writing and public speaking, of course, through Truth Table, <laughs> for the past six years now that I've been doing that um, publicly. So individually, this is how we live. This is what we do. <laughs> and so we kind of, the three of us came together like Voltron, if you will, to really proclaim the ex- excellencies of the Lord, but also how we ought to live. 
If you think about Micah 6.8, which talks about what does the Lord require of you? To love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Like, that's what we're supposed to do. And, and what is it? And how do we, but how, and how are we loving God if we don't love people? And if and we cannot love people well, if we do not take on the issues, the problems, their heartfelt concerns, the, the issues that keep them up at night, the issues that money out of their bank account, the issues that keep money from being, I'm sorry, food on their plate. If we don't wrestle with these, the implications of these structures, um, the implications of these ideologies, and I guess you could say idolatries, <laughs> because money is an idol in this country, um, then I don't, I don't know how you're really loving your neighbor or serving them if you are not concerned with not only their soul, but the material conditions of their lives. And so that's what we're wrestling with in Truth Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation, and have been doing so for years on the podcast. Over the course of over 100 episodes, (laughs) you will hear that thread woven through, I would say, every episode, just about. I love this image of the components of Voltron coming together. (laughs) And as you said that, I also thought about the Apostle Paul, like we are all members of the same body, but we are different parts of the body. That's a very powerful image. And when Paul is talking about that, he's also talking about going to battle, not against other flesh, but against the principalities and powers. So I'm hearing that. So your your Voltron Pauline robot is doing battle against the principalities and powers of colonialism, of sexism, of patriarchy. When I say it like that, does that sound right or would you say it in a different way? No, that sounds absolutely right. (laughs) I like that imagery. But yeah, I don't know how else to describe it, honestly. It's like, I think, and I think it's accurate because we're all, we're individuals, right? We have three separate social locations. We have different ministry focuses, but they all come together and they're complementary, if you will. And I think that think it translates pretty well in, in the book as well. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Akemeni Uwan, and we're talking about both a podcast where she is the co-host with Dr. Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins called Truth's Table, and a companion book that has just recently come out from Convergent Press, also called Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Ekemeni Uwan. Along with Dr. Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins, she is the co-host of the Truth's Table podcast, which was named the 2021 Best Black Religion and Spirituality podcast by the Black Podcasting Awards. Ekemeni Uwan is a public theologian, a contributing writer for Hallmark Mahogany, and the inaugural theologian in residence for the Black Christian Experience Resource Center. 
We're also discussing a companion book to the podcast, also called Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Well, I'm feeling myself drawn to ask you some technical questions about the podcast because I'm a podcaster, you're a podcaster. So maybe you could help my listeners understand when the three of you were starting out and communicating with one another, what was the point where you realized and the switch flipped? This shouldn't just be between the three of us, but this is actually a conversation that would benefit others. And we should figure out a way to get other people listening to what we're saying to one another. Yeah, well, even similarly, even with the book, it was originally not our idea to start a podcast. I actually had a, a producer friend who produced, you know, has his own like independent like podcast network who produces a couple of podcasts, reach out to me and say, you have really good thoughts. You should have your own show. And I was like, I don't know if I want to have my own show. <laughs> I just don't know if I want to, you know, bear that type of responsibility, at least at that juncture. You know, I didn't want that. And so he was like, well, what about you, Michelle and Christina? And I was like, oh, okay, that might work. Because, because we just started a group chat just a couple months ago. And so maybe that will work. And now, full disclosure, we are actually not like avid podcast listeners. We used to start. So we're like, we don't really know. We've heard, um, we listen to some podcasts, but we don't really know what this whole new industry is, because that's, you know, that's what it was, especially back in 2017. Oh, I'm sorry, 2016 technically is when he reached out. And I was like, okay, we didn't know what, was, what it would require. <laughs> so let's just put it that way. I did not know all of the work it would require. So I reached out to Christina and Michelle. I was like, hey, what do you think about this? You know, starting a podcast together. I was like, think about it, pray about it, come back to me. And so they did, and they came back and said yes. And I was like, okay, so we just started. And that's what, and we started in March, 2017. So that is how Truth Table came to be. We came up with the name. So we produced the podcast as well, particularly the creative production and things, and executive producing some things too. We came with the title, the tagline, everything. Everything you hear, the show topics, the series, and all of that is like bootstrapping. It's an independent podcast still. And yeah, that's what we've been doing all these five plus years. Well, and as you've been producing and creating the particularly the content side of the podcast, I'm sure that you have gotten responses from listeners and you have shaped and reshaped your own thinking about the show over these five years based on what that feedback has been. What has been some of the most positive and most growth centered pieces of feedback that you've gotten how i guess what i'm asking is how has the show changed from your original conception of it to what it is now yeah well i think yeah the show has changed a, a bit initially when we started it was just true stable midwives of culture for grace and truth in the early episodes you won't hear this table is built by black women for black women that comes a little bit i want to say when did that show that probably came a little bit later in the season in the first season um and that was actually not to defeat well i guess however you want to take this it was because of i would say very uh, negative responses to the podcast it, uh, to be quite to be blatant and be honest it was actually racist responses to the podcast and so for whom the 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 table is not built for <laughs> so it was it was a white male conservatives white evangelicals that were upset about truth table and launched just this campaign honestly to slander us and attack us and so we're like okay let's clearly stay who this show is for 
<laughs> and make sure we set these boundaries. And so that's how that tagline, uh, and this is, this is a table built by Black women and for Black women. Our core audience of Black women love the show and are still seen by the show and haven't really had any types of like critiques. So they're like, just keep going, keep doing this is it's a for me or because of truth table i've gone back to the church and because of truth table i'm able to see god in new ways that i never considered or or it's just drawn me back closer i find myself more rooted in my faith because of truth table so we've heard all types of feedback but oftentimes very positive from our own um, base or having them email us like okay can you want to talk about this this topic can you give us book recommendations all the time asking us for like book recommendations. So we decided to write our own, <laughs> read our books. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that answer. And one of the things that is ringing out in that answer is you are getting tangible feedback week to week that lives are being changed, that the kingdom is being built and that people who have been marginalized or made vulnerable by the structures of our society are recovering their own voice and their own agency as a result of your work. Now, when I say it back to you that way, does that feel right? Does that sound right? Or would you say it in a different way? Well, yeah, no, that definitely sounds right and accurate. And particularly in an age where a lot of people are dealing with the fallout from the former president, that really shook the church to its core. And a lot of people are reeling, still reeling with the consequences of that. And also the racial trauma that came along with that. So many people have actually left the church and some people have left the faith altogether. And so to hear people, I left the church, I walked away for some time, but I listened to Truth Table because it's kind of, it helps me to at least stay close in some way. Because they know we are all church women. We are committed to our local churches. <laughs> and she was able to do the church. We must. But people use it in that way just as a bone in something where they just can't yet re-enter, right? Or they just can't because of their own their own experience with spiritual abuse or racial trauma, which I would also categorize as spiritual abuse too in, in church, within church context. Truth Table has been, um, you know, a life raft, if you will, for some. A spiritual life raft for some. I love these terms, a balm, a life raft, that kind of rebuilding. I also really love the explicit declaration that, that this is a table built by Black women for Black women. And I I can only imagine some of the really horrible racist backlash that would come as a result of making that statement declarative. But I also can imagine that for someone who has felt, and we're going to get into this in just a moment, but for someone who has felt marginalized by a church that has been built under colonialism for white bodies or a model of discipleship that has said the ideal disciple is the male white body or marriage that has been built around white patriarchy or people who have been separated from their family by diaspora, all topics that you are writing about here in your book, Truth's Table, I can imagine that it would actually be a balm to hear someone saying, no, uh, let me speak to you about your experience that is my experience. Let's share some experience here that isn't narrated by whiteness. Now, when I say it in, in that way, does that land right for you? Because I think that's what I'm hearing you saying, but I want to say, is it that explicit? Yeah, it's like at some point we have to stop telling our own narratives, our own history and our own story. It cannot continue to be mediated through the lens of whiteness. It just can't. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, which is a, a very modern concept that was just created in order to oppress Black people. And so I, I, I was just 
obviously the conversation, it is necessary. It's important, right? It's historical in nature. There's real impact. Race is a reality in America and as is racism. So you can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to live in some utopia here, but I do think that we have got to reclaim our narrative apart from whiteness. And we have, we have better stories to tell. We have a rich history to access. And so what does it look like to dream together and to dream liberatively about what lies ahead for us, about what we can do in the present to be able to strengthen our people? And not just only here in the U.S., but in Africa, on the continent, and around the globe, though, too. So in the Caribbean as well, I think that's really important. So that that Pan-African commitment is in that is in the book, and it's really important to say that even though we are U.S.ians, I think it's important to always be looking out and thinking also about our siblings that are all over the globe. So we don't have the corner market on Blackness here in America, contrary to popular belief. It's important to say, and good to say, and probably should be said more often, Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Akemeni Uwan. She's a public theologian, contributing writer for Hallmark Mahogany, and the inaugural theologian in residence for the Black Christian Experience Resource Center. She is, along with Dr. Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins, a co-host of the Truth's Table podcast, which in 2021 won the Best Black Religion and Spirituality Podcast Award from the Black Podcasting Awards and was named by the New York Times as one of its recommended race-related podcasts. An outgrowth from the podcast has been a new book out from Convergent Press just recently called Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Well, there's a point early on in Truth's Table, the book, where it's in the first of your chapters, you start out and you say, why is it that I got all the hard topics? And in particular, you were dealing with colonialism, you're dealing with questions of discipleship and the way that color plays into a type of racism. You talk about your experience of singleness and the fact that you are not yet part of the institution of marriage, and you talk about the African diaspora. And I said earlier that all of those can be read in a certain way to center whiteness and to center the experience of particularly white men and the comfort and convenience of white men. And you do the hard work in each of these chapters of uncentering that narrative that is so prevalent in Christianity and re-centering women's experience and particularly African-American women's experience. And I'd love to talk about that process, the joy that comes from finding yourself at the center of the story rather than someone like me at the center of the story. Talk to me about that shift and how it is liberative. Yeah. So I, yeah, for me, it was important. If the table, if the table is built by Black women and for Black women, and we say, these are Black women's music, this is a political like liberation, and the book is supposed to be essentially focused on Black women and the issues and the current, our joys, our hopes, and our concerns, then I, I have, as a re- writer, responsibility then to write to them, <laughs> to write explicitly to them. And as a writer, I write for a host of different publications. I write for a host of different audiences, right? But I, it was important for me when I was in the writing zone, if you will, to picture myself at like a Black woman's conference or a Black woman's yeah, meeting of some sort or a retreat of some sort where I'm literally talking to them from some pulpit or some stage about all of these topics and talking in a way that I normally speak. And so it was a challenge in some ways because I don't typically write how I speak. 
I typically write in a much more technical, academic way. If I'm writing for like the Atlantic or, or Washington Post, I have to write for a general audience, aka mainly white. So that's just, those are different types of writings. You have to explain a whole lot of things. But with Black women, I don't have to explain colorism because I do believe that definitions are important in making sure everybody's on the same page because we know that people tend to think that particular words mean different things. And so I was like, let's get a baseline understanding just so that you can walk with me through this conversation <laughs> and understand the pages of the, of the book so you can understand what it is that I'm trying to articulate the argument that I'm pushing forward in the intervention that I propose. And so I really was writing to Black women in my mind. And that's what I pictured in my mind who I was talking to for every chapter, <laughs> every line, if you will. And so you'll see a lot of, um, you know, some of my own just the colloquial Black terms, cultural references. And yeah, the way I would usually speak on the show is what you're getting in that book. It's still very, you're still getting very robust language in there. And that's for sure. You're getting theological frameworks that huh, maybe your probably needs to underline the book. But yeah, that's all in there. And that's just the cultural and I would say intellectual agility that we try to display on the show and in the book. Well, I wanted to ask about this process because I can imagine that one temptation would be to simply transcribe conversations that you've already had on the podcast and turn that into chunks of chapters for the book. I can also see it being a completely separate process, as you said. No, I've got to get into my academic brain now and write as a solo voice. It sounds like you navigated a middle ground between those two, and I'd love to hear about that process. How did you think about taking your speaking voice, which is there a part of this three-way conversation on the podcast, and make that more available on the page than you normally would? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, I... It's funny, I was actually thinking about this either this morning or yesterday. And I was like, when I started writing this, I was like, did I go back and listen to those episodes? I actually don't really remember. I was like, did I go back and listen or did I write? No. And honestly, I don't think I did. I kind of like to start from a bit of a clean slate, even though these are not all of them are clean slates because we have talked about colorism. We have like a two-part episode on colorism on our show, season one, I believe. And then we also... We actually have not talked about decolonized discipleship. We, of course, we do talk about de, you know, decolonizing the faith in different ways on the show, or, or we make mentions of that, but we haven't had like an episode, if you will, you know, about that. And I'm trying to think, singleness, we have talked about singleness on the show, and, and the title of one of those episodes is Hidden in Plain Sight. And so that was kind of like a little bit of a, a nod to that. And the diaspora drugs is completely new. And I... I, I guess so I did not, because I think in some ways I didn't want to, I wanted to approach it from a new place, right? From even though this, this topic of color, these topics are as old as time, <laughs> it seems I wanted to just go in and approach it from where I am now, almost speaking to my younger self, particularly with colorism in that chapter or hidden in plain sight where I am right now as a single woman, you know, and, and so like in, pre in my present um, on those dating apps, it, well, I took my break, like I said in the book, I'm taking my break right now <laughs> from the dating apps, you know, but like, okay, this is my present reality, but also thinking about myself in my 20s, like how, what was it, where was my brain, my, my mind when it came to that subject and where is it now that I'm approaching 40? And so those, all of those topics, I wanted to just kind of come in fresh and not 
even borrowing <laughs> from the content and the things that I said, which are still valid and I'm sure good, but I wanted to be able to start from where um, Academy is right now and kind of go from there. And yeah, so I don't, I don't know. It really, I had to be very, I had to be a little bit more forgiving in my writing process. I can be pretty critical of my writing. And so I'll be like, oh, or very, yeah, very critical of my writing. So I can be like, oh, that was great. Let me delete it and start again. And then it just takes me much longer to write. And so I, my, both Christina and Michelle were just like, just write whatever you're feeling. So that line that you said back to me about, oh, it seems like I have the hardest topics to talk about in this book. That was really how you felt. That's how I started. I was like, okay. Then they were like, that's how I'm going to start off this chapter. <laughs> or I guess technically the book. And so that's what I said. I feel like I have the hardest chapters to talk about. And I'm, I'm sorry, chapters to write. And so that's what I did, even though I selected the topics. So, <laughs> But yeah, so that's a little bit of my process there. I had to be much more forgiving, much more like free flowing than I normally am. But I think that there was, I'm glad I was because it seems like it's really resonating with people so far. People are calling back those particular chapters to me in most of my movies, actually. <laughs> If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Akemeni Uwan. She's a public theologian, contributing writer for Hallmark Mahogany, and the inaugural theologian-in-residence for the Black Christian Experience Resource Center. Along with Dr. Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins, she is the co-host of the Truth's Table podcast, which in 2021 won an award for the Best Black Religion and Spirituality podcast from the Black Podcasting Awards and was named by the New York Times as one of its recommended race-related podcasts. The three of them have recently come out with a companion book called Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Akemeni Uwan. She is a public theologian, contributing writer for Hallmark Mahogany, and the inaugural theologian-in-residence for the Black Christian Experience Resource Center. She's appeared on MSNBC, NPR, and many other channels, and her writings have been published in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and other publications. Along with Dr. Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins, she's the co-host of the Truth's Table podcast, which in 2021 won the award for the Best Black Religion and Spirituality podcast from the Black Podcasting Awards and was named by the New York Times as one of its recommended race-related podcasts. Today, we're talking about an outgrowth from the Truth's Table podcast, a companion book out from Convergent Books recently called Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Well, in the last segment, we were talking about the fact that you were writing on some difficult topics. And in the process of describing that, one term came up repeatedly that I want to make sure we circle back and clarify for listeners who may be unfamiliar with it. The idea of colorism, and that is related to and distinct from racism. I wonder if you could begin to set the stage for us in understanding what we mean by this term colorism, and then I'll ask you if you're willing some follow-on questions about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So colorism is discrimination against darker skinned people or dark skinned people in preference to people who are light skinned. And so this often shows up with ethnic groups so it, or interracial groups 
and you'll have people differentiating between different people based on the melanin count in their skin. So depending on how dark they are or how light they are, the lighter you are, the more preferential treatment you get, the darker you are, the more oppressive a treatment that you get, the more discrimination they experience. But even but it's not only practiced within a specific racial group. So it's it's also in non-black racial groups as well. I want to say that. So in Asian communities, you'll see this in Latin. Latinx communities, you'll see this as well. But also white people do, people outside of those racial groups also do perpetuate colorism. So it's not just an interpersonal thing, you know, where you think, where you have terrible stereotypes about dark-skinned Black people and terrible stereotypes about light-skinned Black people, but a structural in nature. It impacts everything from employment to marriage, to your marriageability pool, dating, your interaction with the criminal justice system, your pay, all everything is impacted by colorism. In the same ways that racism (laughs) impacts just about every facet of our lives as well. Well, and there was an example from your chapter, The Audacious Perseverance of Colorism, that really hit me. You describe a casting choice made for a character who is supposed to be a dark-skinned African-American character. But if I recall correctly, the actress that was cast was lighter-skinned And then they used makeup to darken the skin. And you called this actually a form of blackface. And I'd be interested if you could unpack some of that analysis for my listeners. So what was going on in that dynamic that illustrates for us this concept of colorism? The fact that, well, one person could say, well, but they hired an African-American actress. And you say, ah, but it's more complex than that. Help us to understand the complexity. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there's an example in the chapter. This is when I'm trying to explain actually how colorism still functions even outside of our racial group. Because I think there's a tendency, if you read this chapter, to be like, I'm not Black, so this doesn't apply to me. Or I'm not guilty of this because I'm not Black. I can't be a colorist. And it's like, oh, no, no, not so fast. Which is why I think that example is actually very instructive in that this was from the show Love Crash Country, HBO show, where an extra was cast as a younger Miss Osborna, and they're in their household, you know, where they're in Miss Osborna's home, and there is a wedding picture on the mantle in her home, right? Like, we have pictures all over our homes, right? And it's a picture of her on her wedding day, so she's young, probably in her 20s, and she's getting married, and this actress was cast as Miss, the young Miss Osborna. She was literally supposed to just smile for the camera for this wedding book, this vintage wedding photo, and she was a light-skinned actress and as she's sitting in the makeup chair contexting friends not really completely paying attention but looking up and noticing wait my skin is getting darker like wait a minute what's going on and then they're painting her hands to make her skin darker to make it the skin of somebody that might be have my same skin tone dark brown skin tone and and she's like freaking out <laughs> like what do i do what do i say obviously in shock and traumatized by the experience and feeling like she's between a rock and a hard place and doesn't know what to do in that situation. But I think that's a, it's indicative of the way that colorism functions structurally, right? So instead of hiring a dark skin <laughs> Black actress, which those roles for dark skin Black actress are scarce still, they opted to hire a light-skinned actress to play. This the role of Miss Osborna, but then painted her, I black face, 
Honestly, like you talk, like I say in the chapter, blackface on a blackface is still blackface. And then who are making those decisions primarily, typically? It is not typically African-Americans or even really people of color that are in those casting positions. Yes, there are, there is a percentage, but there's always exceptions, but by and large, you're talking about a white power structure, <laughs> you know, that, that is actually making these casting decisions primarily. And so, yeah, I think that's a very powerful vignette to show how colorism functions and how a people that are not non-Black people and how white people can perpetuate and do perpetuate structural colorism. Colorism in a structural way. Let me say it back to you to make sure that I've gotten clearly what's happening here. So visually, the narrative called for a darker skinned African-American woman, but the structure in place, the casting director and all of the choices that were made, made sure that the money and made sure that the line on the resume and the credit all went to a lighter skinned person, even though visually what was presented was a darker skinned person. So the presentation was there, but none of the money, the credit or the accolade went to darker skin. It was literally used as a kind of mask. Now, when I say it back to you that way, have I understood the kind of structure that you're talking yes, about or have yes, I missed anything? Yes. yes. Now, I don't have I didn't have access to the call sheet, so I don't know if they had put on the call sheet. We are casting call sheet. We're looking for a dark-skinned actress. I don't know what they, they did, but I, I do know that they cast a light-skinned woman in that role. And then when it proceeded to paint her, many, many, many shades darker than the actual actress is. And she herself was appalled. So that lets you know that something sinister was afoot. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Akemeni Uwan. She's a public theologian and is the inaugural theologian in residence for the Black Christian Experience Resource Center, along with Dr. Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins. She's the co-host of the Truth's Table podcast, an award-winning podcast that was recently named by the New York Times as one of the recommended race-related podcasts. Today, we're talking about a co-authored book that has arisen out of that same group called Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. I want to shift now to another chapter that you wrote in Truth's Table that deals with the interface of colonialism and discipleship. And when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about the creation of Christian persons, like how we form people in Christian communities into good Christians, and the marriage of that with a kind of colonial mindset leads to a distortion in some ways of what we think of as the image of God. I'd love to hear more about how we peel away this colonial tendency from this tendency of formation. Yeah, yeah. And the colonist discipleship, I'm in there talking about, I'm trying to give a framework or another way forward within this context of deconstruction, decolonization conversation, where I'm offering people another option, which is more so technically disentangling <laughs> the faith from these legalistic additives, things that there's just like, no, that's not a part of the gospel. <laughs> it's not central to the, Jesus did not die so you can wear floor length skirts. Okay. Jesus did not die so that you can only wear khakis and all these things that we put on to people and require and make like laws that are just like, nowhere to be found in scripture. And having being able to recover the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the faith, while also looking in the mirror and saying, God is good. And God created me as I am in 
And I'm good, <laughs> fundamentally good because God said so, right? Of course, we need Jesus so that we can continue to be perfected and transformed and changed and renewed, not denying that. But as we are in our body, how God has created us is good. And so when we have pictures of, say, white Jesus, which again, made up and is an idol and is not true, though that is used in many ways for people to despise their own being, to despise who God has made them to be and to set standards, false false standards and false skills that, that are not pleasing to God and are harmful to ourselves and to our neighbors. And so that was important for me to lift that up in that chapter as a way forward, because I know a lot of people struggle with that. They are struggling with that, right? Well, and that ties in also to some points that you make in a later chapter on Diaspora Dreams is the title of the chapter, but the subtitle is Blackness as the Image of God. And again, it's taking this idolatrous centering of whiteness out of the story and saying, no, the diversity of the human presentation of all colors, of all different shapes and sizes— that all can be in the Imago Dei. But I think for some of my listeners, that's going to be a kind of an uncomfortable resetting. What do you mean it's not white Jesus? What do you mean it's not white God? So talk to us about that recentering of a different core to that narrative. Yeah, well, I think it's important. For me, it was important to... So I think as human beings, we have a tendency to want to make a God in our own image. It's kind of why God put that commandment in there. I'm just <laughs> It's a thing. We like to do these things. And so to me, it was really important for me to go, okay, like Jesus is a brown-skinned Palestinian Jewish man. Like this is a historical study. It's also a theological truth um, and a present reality. As a Christian, he did not rise as Casper the Friendly Ghost. It was a bodily resurrection. (laughs) And if we believe that is true, then that means that our bodies matter. That means that Jesus right now in this moment is seated at the right-hand side of God the Father right now and interceding for me and for us right now in this interview. Thank you, Jesus. Help me. (laughs) In his body, in his brown-skinned body with nail-pierced hands, you know, right now. That matters. And so we cannot deny <laughs> and we cannot despise our own body and think that, we're, that that pleases God, that does not please God. There's a reason why God made Black and he made us Black on purpose, is what I say in the, in, in the book. And not to mention, you, Paul's account of the Hebrews, of Hebrews, he, ta- he makes much about his ethnicity. But then also he talks about the ways that he misused his power, persecuting the church, persecuting Christians. But yeah, so I guess there's nowhere in scripture where we're called to this false choice of having to choose between our ethnicity and our faith. That's just not a choice. That's not a choice. And if we believe that on the last day when Jesus comes back, He's going to, we are going to be raised from the dead. What is being raised? Our souls? Oh, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not our souls. It's our bodies. <laughs> so it matters. There is a redemption that awaits us. And, and we will be in glory, our bodies. Now, what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when we see him, we'll be like him. And so I think, so to me, that was really important to be able to really explicate that in some accessible and real ways. Those are some really deep and complicated theological issues. (laughs) I just listed out. But that's the reality. That's what we believe. 
if we say we're Christians, that's what we believe. That's what we hold to. Those are fundamentals and tenets of the faith. Those are not, ter- that's not tertiary. I just know that we don't often think about judgment day. We don't often think about the last day, but that's, we ought to be living with that reality every day, living with that, that reality and every day, eternal view, eternal mind in view, because we don't know when our lives will be demanded of us. What I love about that answer, and I want to pull back to when you were talking about Jesus presenting in the resurrection with the wounds. And one one of the things that comes out in each of these chapters is don't run from your woundedness. Don't be afraid of your woundedness because the Mm -hmm. woundedness is a part of you. It's part of your story. And Jesus takes that up too. I love that you did that in the book. And I'd love for you to say a little bit more about that if you'd be willing. Yeah, it's not a small thing that that Jesus right now has those scars, has those wounds as evidence that, no, this really happened. (laughs) It's not a small thing that Jesus resurrected and ascended, and he's seated. That means that his work is done. The session of Jesus Christ means that he he ceased his work. He did what he was supposed to do. (laughs) And now we're just waiting for, I think just the picture of Jesus's wounds, you know, also said that there is healing available to us, that we are the walking wounded. No doubt on this side, you are going to accumulate wounds. You're going to accumulate scars, but you are not, I think Brian Stevenson says this, that you are not the worst thing. You are more than the worst thing that you've done. And then my co-host, Christina Evanson, has said, you are more than what's happened to you. <laughs> that's not the first, no, more than the worst thing that's happened to you. That's not the final story. That is not the final story. Redemption awaits you. Restoration awaits you. You have yet only to continue to trust and hope in Jesus, which is not easy to do, but it's by the grace of God, right? And like by our own device, thing, this world is very, it's so perilous. We're really living in some t- perilous times where it just feels like there's a real shaking. And a lot of people are losing heart and they're losing their hope. They're losing their faith. And they're just like, I'm tired. I'm done. I just don't think God cares, right? But if we yet hold on, that restoration is coming for us because we have a God who knows, who went to firm this point for our own redemption, for our own salvation, so that we could be with him. And there's no way, there's no way that we would ever be abandoned or forsaken, even if we feel like, and thank God our feelings are not facts. And so I think there's always those times when self-talk is necessary. And sometimes we got to encourage ourselves, as scripture says, to encourage yourselves and believe again and dream again and hope again. And if you can't, then get a friend who can on your behalf. Sometimes we get to borrow each other's faith. Because there's just some time where you say, I can't pray. I'm tired. I can't keep praying about this. Like, I think somebody has to do this. I'm tired. But you have that good, those good faithful friends that will do that for you. But ultimately, our friend, Jesus Christ, is praying for us. And I think we can't lose sight of that. Well, Akemeni Uwan, five years ago, you and your co-hosts, Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins, began building this table by Black women for Black women. And as you said at the beginning of the conversation, I'm standing on the wall as an observer here. (laughs) I am so grateful for the chance to be able to listen in on these conversations, to, to gain wisdom from your book, Truth's Table. I'm so grateful that you and your co-hosts and now co-authors took the time to bring these kinds of conversations and thoughts into the world. Thank you for that, but thank you especially for taking time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you. Thank you, David. And I love that you said you're, you know, you're in that standing room section, you're holding up the wall, because there is something we, we, even though the, the you know, the table is built by, by Black women, for Black women, this, this book 
will is instructive and helpful, I think, for everyone. We have got to learn from one another. We have to rewrite resources all day all the time. So, so that's not even that's not even a, a question, you know, for us as a given, right? Because of the the society that we live in. Yet, I would challenge your listeners to to take that step, to reach beyond your own silos, your own circle, and to go to the further points of in the margins and pick up the book to begin to read. When was the last time I read a black woman from uh, a book from a black woman, black Christian woman, who are talking about political issues and all of the and personal issues and dating and marriage and love, like, and, and challenge yourself to learn and to begin again, but to be renewed in different ways and challenged in different ways. It will, be, it will be a challenging me, but it will be rewarding if you stick with it. You know. <laughs> We've been speaking today with Akemini Uwan. She's a public theologian, contributing writer for Hallmark Mahogany, and the inaugural theologian in residence for the Black Christian Experience Resource Center. Along with Dr. Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins, she's the co-host of the Truth's Table podcast, which won the 2021 Best Black Religion and Spirituality Podcast Award from the Black Podcasting Awards and was named by the New York Times as one of its recommended race-related podcasts. Growing out of that podcast, there's a new book co-authored by the three called Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.